0: Well, Shabbat Shalom everybody. It's good to, uh, I always want to say it's good to see you. I see you in my mind, but all I see is a big glass eye that never blinks pointing at me. But I have about a dozen or more friends here with me this morning. I know that uh, the background looks a little different and I'll give you a tour of the new Beth DeKoon. Um, what do we call it, not worship center, ministry center is the new name for it. And so a little bit later, I'll be making an announcement about Beth de plans going forward. I'm very excited about this. And uh, we'll we'll take you on a virtual tour around the place. It's pretty amazing. But this morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I know the title seems kind of weird, The Ignorant Life. This chapter is not to teach us how to be ignorant, but really how not to be ignorant. So let's have a word of prayer. We'll get right into the, the study. Our Father and King, thank you so much for the time of prayer that, that we have been privileged to partake in, whether in our homes or here or wherever we may be. And Lord, thank you for hearing our hearts, for hearing our prayers. And Lord, thank you for speaking to us through your holy word and through these letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Lord, help us to learn the lessons that Paul was trying to teach them. And may these lessons not be lost upon us. For Lord, we tend to be ignorant. We tend to not know things that we should. So Father, help us. Help us to live lives that are wise and insightful. Lord, I pray you'd protect all of us, wherever we're at, from confusion, from error, and from distraction, so we can focus on what you would speak this morning to us. And we praise you that we can come before you like this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Well, over the last few weeks, we've, uh, we've had some interesting titles. The Spiritual Life and the, uh, the Fireproof Life, the Unleavened Life, and now it's the Ignorant Life. In this chapter, chapter 6, there are only 20 verses, but in these 20 verses... Paul asked 12 questions, 12 questions and 20 verses. He asked nine questions in the first nine verses by themselves. And six times he asked, don't you know? Now, usually when somebody's asking a bunch of questions like this, it's because they're angry. It's like uh, you go out to get some groceries, you leave the kids at home alone, and when you get back, it's like, what were you all thinking? Why did you do this? Who had the idea to repaint their room using balloons full of paint water balloons? What's your dad going to say when he gets here? You have any idea how much this is going to cost to fix? I mean, question, 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 question. And that's what Paul's doing here with the Corinthians. He's been kind of holding back, but he is very disturbed by their practices and the things that they're they're thinking and doing and projecting and and uh, presenting to the world. So, let's just dive right in. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the holy people? Or do you not know? And here's our first, do you not know? Do you not know that the holy people will judge the world? Don't you know this? He's saying, you all, as believers, as disciples of Messiah, God has promised that you, as the holy people, are going to judge the world. And yet you're going to an, un, uh, an unrighteous judge to judge you. The very judge you're going to be judging someday, you're asking to judge you because you can't get along. Now, how does Paul know that we're going to judge the world? Well, this is based on Daniel chapter 7. Verses 21 and 22, it says, I beheld, and that horn made war with the holy people and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given to the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when the holy people possessed the kingdom. So based on that, we realize that we're going to be judging the world. And Yeshua also said to his disciples that they would rule over 12 cities and um, so God has purpose for us in the world to come but it continues on and if the world is to be judged by you are you incompetent to try trivial cases you're gonna be judging the world later can't you judge little basic things right now let me tell you something about small things I've always said that's Spiritual power is found in small things, little insignificant and humble things, but great spiritual danger is found there as well. Remember, if you want to make a knife sharper, do you add more material to the blade or do you remove material from the blade to make it thinner and smaller? You remove material. That's why you grind it and you polish it because the thinner and and the less of the edge there is, the more piercing it becomes. And too many times in our lives, we, let, we, we deal with the big things well, but the little things come in and just tear us to pieces. So we need to realize that small things can be very sharp and piercing. We need to deal with the things that seem trivial. Then he asked the second do you not know question. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Not only the world, but angels? Now, this is not found anywhere in Scripture. Where is Paul getting this? Well, in one of the very ancient sources, one of the mystical sources, it says this. When the Holy One, blessed be He, decided to create man, He said, let us make man in our image. That's Genesis 126. And then it goes on. He wanted to make Him a leader over all angels above so that He might govern all the angels and they would be under His rule. In other words, God had very high aspirations for Adam, according to this ancient source. And apparently, was an ancient source that was familiar to the first century believers. But someday, they would judge the angels. Now, we're made a little lower than the angels. But we go through sufferings that they don't. We go through trials, temptations, sicknesses, failures, death, things they never experience. And so God will use us to judge the angels who left their first estate, who rebelled against God. So he's going to take creatures who did not have as much going for them and yet succeeded and were faithful to God to judge angelic creatures who weren't faithful to God. Think about that. It's like the little runt you fired from work because you just didn't like him and then he becomes your boss. You know, it's one of those things. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than the matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the community? I say this to your shame. This is the only Greek word we're going to learn today. The word for shame in Greek is only found twice in the Apostolic Scriptures, here and then again later in First Corinthians, over in chapter 15. And the Greek word for shame is the word entropy. Pronounced just that way, entropy. Now you know what entropy is, right? Entropy is that tendency for things just to run down. If They don't have a life coming into them, and energy coming in. The system runs down. Shame is entropy in your life. When you've done something wrong and you have not corrected it, you haven't made it right, Energies just starts leeching away from your life. Your life level just keeps diminishing. According to the rabbis, the pain of, of hell, the pain of hell is not burning of skin like when you get burned in the fire. But the pain of hell is called shame. So when you experience all the shame that you just decided to ignore and act like it wasn't there, and you begin to feel the pain of shame for all the things you've done. And um, so there's the emotion of shame, and thank God we have those emotions so we can correct it. But then there's the actual guilt and shame itself, and that shame of it is not dealt with. That's the spiritual entropy in your life that will just leech away your life and energy. I say this to your entropy, your shame, Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Listen, everybody's going to have disagreements. This is going to happen. I don't care how much you love someone. You're going to have a disagreement now and then. Settle it. Settle it in a small way. Deal with it. But don't go dragging it out into public. That's shameful. And then, look what he says. He tells us how to deal with it. To have lawsuits, verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So you may want to take your case to trial, but by taking it to trial, you've already lost. Here's how you deal with it. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? There are people who have come to me and um, they've been deeply hurt by a brother or sister. Deeply hurt, deeply offended. And they say, what do I say? What should I do? Because there's this thing wired into us. We want justice. We want a wrong to be made right. So what do I say? How do I make that person realize what they did to me? And sometimes there's nothing you can do except for one thing. It's the hardest advice I ever have to give to somebody. And I say, you just absorb the hurt, absorb the pain, absorb the insult. And if you'll do that, it comes to an end. But when you want to retaliate and try to get them to realize how hurt you are by making them feel pain, it goes back and forth and escalates into warfare. What did Yeshua do? He's nailed to the cross. He had done nothing wrong. He had lived a perfect life. He had been love incarnate, and they executed him as a murderer, as a criminal. And He's on the cross, and what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't realize what they're doing. He absorbed it. If we want to live a life like Yeshua's, you and I are going to have to absorb hurt and pain. Now, we don't die for other people's sins. Other people's sins may cause our death. But we can't take away other people's sins, but we can absorb the pain of them as he did for us. And when you do that, hardest thing you'll ever do, you're going to feel better. And you're going to bring this retaliation, this escalation of warfare to an end. And that's what Paul's saying here. Why not rather just suffer the wrong? They did something wrong to you. Okay, big deal. Just suffer it. Just, just absorb it. Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Verse 9. Or do you not know? Here we are again. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, it used to be when I read that I think, oh, unrighteous people don't go to heaven. When you see kingdom of God, that's not referring to heaven. We need to recalibrate how we think about scriptural things and and understand them in the context of what they're written. The kingdom of God is wherever God's will is done. You put a mazuzah on your door, that means you step across that threshold. You're stepping into God's turf where inside the walls of this home, we follow God's Torah, God's rules, because he's the king inside this house. And God's kingdom is what Yeshua prayed for when he says, your kingdom come. And then he defines it. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what God's kingdom is. When his will is done here the way it's done there. Now right now, it's in individual lives where his kingdom can rule because Yeshua says, the kingdom of heaven is within you. Okay? So I can rule over this piece of real estate whether I'm married or single or have a house or not, this is the real estate where the kingdom of God can rule. Then, when I have a home, where I am the father, I'm the mother, I'm the authority in the home, I put that mezuzah there as a reminder that this home is the kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom where God's rules apply. When we come together as a community, that can be a place where God's rules apply. because We all agree that God's our king. We do things his way. In Israel, ideally, within the borders of Israel, that's where God's will is done. Okay, When you step into Israel, you come under the the, uh, auspices and control of their king. They don't have a king right now. Someday. Someday. But there's a day coming when he will be king over all the earth. And the kingdom of heaven will be here. Now, if you want to enter into that kingdom where God's will is always done, you need to live a righteous life. Because the unrighteous cannot live in a place where only righteousness is allowed. Remember the five foolish virgins? They didn't prepare for the coming of the bridegroom. They might have been been perfect tens, beautiful, but they weren't prepared. So what they do? They were on the outside of the banquet hall looking in. It says had, there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. That doesn't mean hell. Weeping means there's sadness, there's shame. Gnashing of teeth means there's anger. Gnashing of teeth throughout the scriptures means anger. Who are they angry at? Themselves? Angry that God meant what he said? Anyways... If you are not living a righteous life, at this moment you cannot be a part of God's kingdom. It doesn't change the fact Yeshua died for you, forgave you for your sins, provides salvation. But his kingdom is the place where his rules are in charge, where his rules are applied. And remember the list of six sins that bar someone from being a part of the community? They're at the end of chapter 5 in verses 11 and 12. Well, this time he lists those, but he adds the list. Now he mentions nine things. He says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These things are contrary to God's rules. And God's kingdom is where the king rules and his rules are carried out. And if you're practicing these things, you can't be part of his kingdom. You can't enter into that. But verse 11, I love this. And such were some of you. Some of you practice these things, one or two or all of them. But that's in the past. You're not that anymore. One of the toughest things I think for believers to do is to adopt to their or adapt to their new identity. This is why, when we put on our armor, you know the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, or the spirit. What's the helmet? What goes around the head? The helmet of Yeshua, salvation. In other words. The helmet, this protects my mind and it identifies what team I'm on. And I must always protect my mind and realize I have been saved by Yeshua, the Son of God. I don't do things my way anymore. He bought me with a price. I belong to him. I must never forget who I am. I forget what book it was I read Many years ago, and is talking about how to to uh, fight temptation, and the secret is always remember who you are. And um, someone recently was remind me. I think it might have been Robin. Where the question you ask a child is not what do you want to be when you grow up, but who do you want to be when you grow up? Who do you want to be? And when a child does something wrong, who do you want to be? Is this who you want to be? And I and attach their identity with their actions. And in this book, it talked about uh, someone who's been training for a race. Maybe it's the Olympics. He's been training for this big race. He's going to sprint. There's the finish line, hundred yards down the or hundred meters down the, the track and they're getting ready, they're, they've got their track shoes on, they're all ready, and it's, they're getting their lungs filled with air, and, and uh, just getting ready to run this race. And then some beautiful girl comes up, and she's got a big bowl of ice cream and a plate of thick chocolate cake, and, and says, you know, hey big fella, wouldn't you like <laughs> some of this? Wouldn't you like some of this right now? Now what are you going to do? Oh, yeah, I've got to have some ice cream, I've got to have it right No. Because you realize, I'm in a race. It's getting ready to start. I've been training for months to run this race. And there's a prize waiting for me at the end if I win it. Right then, you couldn't care less about ice cream or cake or beautiful women. Because your identity is completely invested in the race you've been preparing for. And if we can keep that mindset that we're running a race, that there's a prize set before us, that we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses watching us, and we're in training. We're in a race. This is life and death. That so when temptations come along, it's like, no, I don't have time for that. It's not who I am. You understand? So let's not forget our identity. Not forget who we are. So such were some of you, but you were washed. You were set apart. You were set right. Yours may say washed, sanctified, and justified, but that's what those words mean. You're washed. The past has been washed away. You are then set apart for something better than what you were living for. And you've been set right. God has given you his word. He's he's adopted you into his family. You have a new identity. So come on, don't forget who you are and what he's done for you. You are washed. You are set apart. You are justified, set right in the name of the master, King Yeshua, and by the spirit of our God. Don't forget who you are. Now, verse 12 has been so misused, misunderstood, misapplied. Because it says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. That all things are lawful for me. If you really believe that, then it means all those nine things he mentions above, they're all lawful for you. Adultery, murder, theft, kidnapping, whatever it is. It's all lawful. It's all good. And I have met pastors, I know of one particular, who was always preaching this. He believed the Torah was done away with. He really believed all things were lawful, and he lived it. He destroyed his health. He destroyed his marriage. He destroyed his ministry and his testimony. Destroyed it all because he locked it on this verse, took it out of context, misunderstood it, and thought I can do all things because of God's grace. I'm free to do whatever I want. I'm just free. What is Paul saying here? Now, when you read this in the complete Jewish Bible, it says this, you say all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. You say all things are lawful for me, but I'm telling you I will not be dominated by anything. In other words, it seems to be a phrase that was going around because Gnosticism was a big thing in the first century. And Gnosticism says this, basically. Spiritually, you're pure, you're clean. Everything's perfect spiritually. But this body, this physical stuff, it's trash. And whatever sins you commit using your body doesn't make any difference because your soul or your spirit stays unaffected. There's a total disconnect between the spirit and the body. And Paul was constantly teaching against this. And that's why he says in 1 Thessalonians that your entire, or second, first or second, your entire spirit and soul and body be preserved. God wants us to be one as he is one. And, um, and so that could be what he's saying here. He's, he's teaching against Gnosticism. Or what he meant was, Of all the things that are lawful for me, I will not be, uh, uh, not all of them are helpful. Of all the things that are lawful for me, I will not be dominated by anything. That's another possible reading. Because he names two particular sins, I want you to ask yourself, what do these two sins have in common? First is gluttony. Verse 13 says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. The second sin is sexual immorality, namely specifically prostitution. The body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us, raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Messiah? Shall I then take the members of Messiah, make them members of a prostitute? Never. Why these two sins, gluttony and specifically prostitution? Why does it name these two? I know Brandon knows the answer. <laughs> Any other guesses? Give people time to think. Yes, Phil. They do affect the temple, make it impure, no question about it. But can't, there are other sins, aren't there, that do that. Why are these two set apart? These two are very specific why they're set apart. But no, that's a good answer, but there's another reason why these two in particular. Kathy? One is completely external, one's internal? Um, One's external, one's internal. Kind of, but that's still not the reason he chose these two sins of all of them. They're not mentioned in the Torah. There you go. There is no Torah commandment against gluttony. There's no Torah commandment. Now be careful here, because I know some of you are going to brand me a heretic. I'm just telling you the truth. There's no Torah commandment against prostitution. But, are you ready? Gluttony is still a sin. Prostitution is still a sin. The Torah is not a catalog of all the things that are sins. The Torah is a sampling that gives us dots, This is a sin. Don't do that. This is a sin. This is a sin. And then as you connect the dots, you get a complete picture, and you can fill in the gaps. So he's taken two things that the Torah does not specifically mention as forbidden and says even though you have a legal loophole that you might think, oh, I'm allowed to do this because the Torah doesn't teach against it, it's still a sin. It will still destroy you. Yes, Phil. Of course it does. Of course it does. But someone who's trying to use the Torah to justify an immoral action could say, well, there's no place the Torah says, I can't do this. In fact, the Pharisees, because they were sinful men, many of them, not all, they would use the loopholes of Torah. They'd use the gaps between the dots. The dots are the specific sins the Torah mentions. They would use the gaps in between to excuse all kinds of immoral behavior. Remember, the the Torah is not a catalog of all the things God doesn't like and that we shouldn't do. He wants us to know his heart. heart. The Torah is a light that reveals his heart. And if we know his commandments, we can get the shape of what his will is. And we know that these two things, gluttony and prostitution, are not part of his will for us. They are destructive. Now, Proverbs talks about gluttony and the wickedness of it and the destruction uh, that it causes. But it it's not in the Torah. Now, with that said, there is one place in the Torah, Deuteronomy, I believe, uh, in 2317, where it says, none of the daughters of Israel shall be a Kadesha, nor shall any of the sons of Israel be a Kadesh. That is not the normal word for prostitute, which is Zonah. This refers to Someone who does these wicked practices in relationship to a pagan god. In fact, uh, the translation, the ESV, even puts in the word "a cult prostitute." Okay, because this is a uh, one who's doing these wicked things in connection with some foreign god, some idolatrous worship. Okay, but the common word it's not there. So, that's our next do you not know question. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Messiah? Now, when we get over to chapter 12, the great portion of chapter 12 is all about this. Uh, Chapter 12, verses 12 to 27, it starts this way. Um, For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body Though they are many, are one body, so also is Messiah. Then it ends in verse 27. Now you are Messiah's body and individually members of it. So we're going to save conversation on that until we get to chapter 12. So going on to verse 16. Another do you not know question. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Don't you know that? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the master, to the Lord, becomes one spirit with him. What Paul is, is saying here, and we'll go on, we'll finish the passage. Flee from sexual immorality. When you read that, you should think of who? Joseph, Potiphar's wife, he fled. Flee from sexual immorality Either Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know, and this is our last do you not know question, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You do not belong to you, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Why is this specific sin of sexual immorality so much worse than all the others? Because it takes God's greatest gift, his greatest physical gift to us, that's the connection of a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. The most joyful, most blessed and beautiful connection, relationship that's possible on the physical realm. And he says that is picturing a spiritual relationship. And when you engage in this most special of connections and of relationships, and you misuse it for your own pleasure, it is the most damaging to your soul and spirit. When he talks about how two become one flesh, they become one. Think of this, each of you as a body. Now, if you take these two that are put together, and it's a one-night stand, and then you go your separate ways. It's like taking your own body. Your body's one flesh. Your body's one flesh. Each of us has a body of one flesh. It's like ripping off a part of your body. There's less of you left, less of you left and you're weakened. You are damaged. And people may say, well, you know, I've, I had lots of encounters when I was a, a young person, and I don't feel damaged. That's because the damage is spiritual. It can be physical. It can be soulish. But because we're so spiritual numb and insensitive, it's like a person having their hand ripped off and not even feeling it. You see somebody, hey, you're you're bleeding, your hand's gone. What happened? Oh, I don't know, just a flesh wound, it's nothing. I don't feel anything. And think of people who continue to become one flesh with a partner only to part then become flesh with another partner and part. It's like ripping off parts of your body. It's taking one flesh, one body, and ripping it and tearing it to pieces. And they say, ah, it was all fun. What's the harm? Nobody's hurt. You have no idea how much pain it's caused. No idea how much damage it's caused to your life. And so this, this act, which is infused with so much pleasure yet it's so spiritual that when people engage in it recul- rec- recklessly and selfishly it causes incredible damage to their lives incredible damage to the family incredible damage to the children to the world and uh, so Paul says this is the worst this is the worst everything else is out there but this is ripping your, your very self apart so no wonder the enemy uses it to, uh, to tempt so many into um, sin. And because of this horrible sin and sexual immorality, it leads to abortion. And it leads also to child abuse. It leads to fatherless children. And then to all the other things that, Along with this, it's death to a society when this happens. He says, Don't you know that you are temples or sanctuaries of God's Spirit? There's a, a well known drosh on Exodus 25 8, the rabbis always talk about when they comment on this verse. Exodus 25 8 says, Let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And there is the verse in Hebrew. Va'asoli mikdash. A mikdash. That is a sanctuary. Okay, that's the word sanctuary right there. And uh, there's the word kadosh. Those last three letters means a holy, right? Set apart. So kadosh is holy. Mikdash is a holy place. A sanctuary. A place that's sanctified. And Ush there's the word shekan. There's where we get the word shekinah. It means just to dwell. The, uh, the tabernacle is called a Mishkan because the shekinah glory would Shekhan there. It would dwell there. So let them make for me a Mikdash so that I can she- Shekhan, but Tocham, among them. But that word among them also means within them. Same word, could mean either one. And this is how the rabbis often read it. Let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell within them. In other words, make your life, your body, the way you live, conduct yourself, make it a sanctuary with an outer court, a holy place, and holy of holies. that I can dwell within you. So this notion that we are temples of God's spirit was nothing new when Paul wrote it. This is a well-established theology in uh, Jewish thinking. So, that is probably the shortest teaching I'm going to do in 1 Corinthians. And, uh, I told you in the announcement I wanted to share with you the direction forward that God has shown us and prepared and and, and provided for us to, to follow. And, um, and I'm going to do this in a, in a way that, that you'll get as excited about and inspired about it as, as I am. And as I was trying to think how to present this, for some reason I was driving down the road here just, uh, just yesterday, in fact, and trying to think, okay, how do I phrase this announcement and, and uh, make it as, as unscary as I can for everybody? And this phrase from the Talmud, which I'd heard many times before, popped into my head. It says, always it has been that the left hand pushes away and the right hand draws near. I've come across this so many times in Jewish writings. And uh, though I never really understood it that well, I always said somehow it's very true. Down in my heart I thought, there's something very true about this, though I don't understand it. Because remember, the right hand is always what? The spiritual. Left hand's always the physical. And I know in my life, God has used physical circumstances to push my life or push things out of the way that I didn't want to let go of. But with his right hand, with the spiritual, he'll draw me closer. And so many times there are circumstances come to our lives that we don't like. And it looks like our, our life is going away with them. And uh, that's God's left hand. And over the last several months, there have been a number of things completely outside of our control that have been pushed away. Let me just go through a little history of Beth the Coon. Back in March, we had COVID hit. This new disease and we were told all kinds of horror stories about how deadly it would be, how contagious it was. And we saw charts that was spreading across the world. Some of it seemed overblown. It was all politicized. We knew that. But it was unknown. We didn't know what to do. And um, government started shutting down businesses. And all, we Well, I don't need to go over all this. You, you've experienced it. And so at Beth the de we decided, the elders decided unanimously, we need to just shut Beth the Coon down and uh, keep people apart, protect them, because we don't want to put the, uh, the flock in any kind of danger by being reckless. So for three months, from about March through May, we uh, just stayed at home. And during this time, Tim started doing live streaming, and you know, we would, he would lead us in prayers and prayers, uh, We'd gather around our little iPads and our computer screens and look at each other. and It's very awkward, strange, but a special memory. But then in June, we realized this thing's not quite as severe as what it's been cracked up to be. And so we decided to return to services. But people were masked up, but we practiced social distancing. We changed Oneg. In fact, I only think we we had Oneg there for quite a while. But when we came back, our attendance was half of what it was. We'd have maybe 60, 65 people, maybe 75, but really never much more than that. Half of what it used to be. And we realized a lot of these people who weren't coming back were not going to come back. Some of them were elderly, and so the risk of being exposed to COVID and contracting it was especially dangerous to them. Others just got really used to being at home, watching the live stream, and they just thought, you know, it's a long distance, and let's just stay home. We can watch it on our own time. But that's just the way it was. Then we got kicked out of the building. (laughs) Who saw that one coming? <laughs> eviction. On September the 10th, I was called into a meeting with a couple of elders from the, uh, the church we were renting the building from. And uh, they told me they wanted to discuss some theology with me. I thought, oh, great. We have some students here. <laughs> I got that one wrong. And uh, after they discussed the theology, I thought something's up. And then they pulled a slip of paper out and handed it to me. And it was our eviction notice. And they gave us till the end of the year to get out, and so we, we started looking for a building, looking, looking, looking. I think the elders, including myself, called pretty much every church building, and buildings that weren't churches to try to find a building to meet. No building. I mean, everybody did due diligence on this. Um, we found one that was going to welcome us in, but it. The location and things about the building just wasn't suitable for Beth the Kuhn. We just We all agreed. We toured it. And uh, the pastor was very kind. We really liked him. And, but it just wasn't the right building. It wasn't the right fit for us. So no building. And again, all of these things are circumstances. None of us had control over any of these things. It was God's left hand pushing. Pushing away. And then... We had COVID take two. Okay? It was the second wave that came through. Now, this one has been much more serious. With the first one, I heard of people who were sick. This time, I knew many people who were sick. And Rob and I even have some acquaintances who died from COVID. And we all know people who are sick now. We just prayed for someone uh, earlier, a friend of uh, Heather's who's got COVID for the second time, and a and, uh, young man, and very ill from it. So we shut down services again, and that's why we're not in a building right now. All ag- again, all of these things out of our control. All of these things where I used to look back and I see these are circumstances and God runs the world. Just kind of saying, out. But this right hand... So faithful, and the problem is the solution we couldn't meet, and so God has gifted us with a young man named Tim Pell, who's so creative and uh and tech savvy and um, and then with people like dave deacon and and Matt who's about to get married in april so <laughs> congratulations again matt matt barton uh, Tim began to pioneer how to do live stream. We were forced into doing it. And since then, he's re- continued to refine the process. We've gotten equipment to where we can do it much better. And Tim would lead us in prayer each week over the over the iPad. And those were inspired. Those were amazing times of prayer. And Lindsay come over and Robin and I, maybe one or two other people who we thought probably didn't have covid <laughs> and we would, we would pray together, and it was a wonderful time. And, um, and then, finally, Steve and Donna Meeks come. I had hoped they could come a full year and a half earlier, but because of commitments they had in Tennessee, they couldn't come until June of this year. And when they came, they came in to a, a Beth Coon that was half, the size of the one that usually met, and uh, but they began to counsel, began to speak into marriages and into the lives of parents, and and uh, to do amazing work there. Been an inspiration to me, and and um, have been such a gift even in this difficult time. I always, when I think of their coming, I hope they don't get big heads from this. I don't think they will. I often pray and think, Father, thank you for your proof that you love Beth the And even the way they came was such a supernatural way. We didn't go out looking for someone to come to Beth the I prayed that God would send somebody. And, and uh, lo and behold, the timing was perfect. The way they came and the work they've been doing has just been amazing. But then, God speaks. And you all know me, I'm not a sensationalist. And I've always told you, beware if people say, I've got a word from the Lord for you, and I'd still beware of those people. I'm not one of those people. When I say God speaks, there wasn't an audible voice or sky riding in the air or where I was knocked out and had this vision like Daniel or John would have. It came in the form of a simple conversation. We were at Steve and Meek's home. Their son, Benjamin, was there. We are just talking. And all this time I've been praying for months, i praying, Lord, what's, what do we do with Beth the Coon? These people I love. These people I've invested my life in for so long. Wow, what are we supposed to do? What's the path forward? I had no idea. No idea. And a simple conversation. A spark. Just a spark. Went right into my mind and my heart. And the same thing happened with Robin. And that spark caught fire in our souls. And that was the first thing. And the very next day, or that night, I called Rob Horger and, and Roger Cash, because Rob is uh, the president of the congregation, the treasurer, and he just handed the reins over to Roger as president. I thought I need to talk to these two guys. I talked to them, that less than 24 hours later, and God dropped into our lap the BT Ministry Center. Didn't have to lift a finger. This place in which we're sitting right now, this beautiful office complex was sitting idle, empty. Because of COVID, the people here cleared out they're all working from home. And the person who has the lease on this was like, what do I do with this space? And in that conversation, a phone call was made. And here we are. Now, the people sitting here in the room They'd taken the tour, but now I want the rest of you to go on the tour with me. So here, here is our, it starts playing. Here we go. Now, there's supposed to be sound with this. So I narrated it as I went through, but for some reason, it's not playing. But here we've come in the entrance. And this is where I'm sitting right now. And we have room here for probably 30, 35, 40 people. And this room right here, that's where Matt's sitting right at the desk. He's watching everything on the screen. This is the, I call it the the bridge of of the Starship Enterprise right there. This is the tech room that Tim has set up with all of our multimedia. And this little corner here is going to be, once we get rid of that orange wall, (laughs) I painted something else. I thought plaid would look good. Uh, We're going to do a series of podcasts here. Steve and Donna have uh, uh, plans for podcasts about restoring the family. And they'll be interviewing people from Beth to Kuhn and presenting some teachings. And uh, this is our conference room. That's where we had prayer this morning. It's a beautiful place. It's a great place for Bible studies, discipleship, meetings, uh, book discussions, Monopoly tournaments, whatever you want to use it for. We have our own restrooms, our own barista right there, (laughs) making coffee. We'll have a little refrigerator right here where that table is. And as we move on along, here's at the children's ministry room. Allie and Robin spent hours going through every bit of curriculum and material. And, and Allie has some amazing plans for how this will be used. Moms can gather at different times during the month bring the children in. Allie will have all kinds of teachings and activities for them while the ladies can have a, a Bible study or a book discussion. And this is going to be an office where Steve will, be, will have available to him whenever he wants to do counseling on our reference libraries in here as well. And then as we go on around, we have another place here for study, for discussion, for prayer. And then as we go on through this door, we have our training center. This is where I can teach some Hebrew classes. I want to teach a course on how to study the Bible. This will all be live streamed, be recorded, and it will be available for uh, for people who want to listen in and watch. All kinds of classwork can take place here. And then we have our own Oneg room. Plenty of room. Tables, chairs, refrigerators, and, of course, big coffee machines. And as we go back into the large gathering room, we have our our library. We'll have times for people to come in, check out books, do study. And the amazing thing about this... Office space is that we have it 24-7. Not two or three hours one day a week, but whenever we want to use it. For studies, for activities, for children's activities, for meetings, for discipleship, for counseling. We can even have little receptions in here if we want. And uh, there's just no end to how we can use this space. What a gift from God it is. I expect this to be a very lively place over the weeks to come. And um, so it's, uh, a, again, a gift from God. With his right hand, he just drew close. One phone call, and here we are. And it's a blessing to us and so we're being a blessing to the person who still has a lease on this. So let's go back to this. So God provided us a ministry center where we can do incredible things, produce podcasts and teachings that go out all over the world. But where do we gather? And this is the brilliant idea that God sparked, that came from him. We go back to where the church began in Acts. I know the church starts in in Genesis, but the messianic gathering the Messianic assembly, and that's the home. And as you read through Paul's letters, they're written to churches, assemblies, that meet in a home. And throughout Acts, you see him meeting with believers in the home. And part of this, this download from God is this real conviction. And I hope I'm wrong on this, because it could change. But I believe we're heading into dark times. We're living in dark times. And I see more and more, and as I pray about it, and I listen to wise men who, who um, are a lot smarter than me, who walk close to the Lord, they all are speaking with one voice now, that God's blessing has almost completely been removed from this country. I think the only thread of blessing that's left, that he's still blessing this country, is that we still bless Israel. But that thread could be cut at any time. And when that happens, God's blessing is going to be removed from this country. So here will be a blessed people living in an unblessed land, which is not unusual. That's pretty much par for the course for God's people throughout history. We've been living in only the second country that was ever founded on Scripture and on a covenant with God. The first country was Israel. The other country was the United States of America. There's only two. And they run parallel paths. As, a, as we see different times in history when Israel fell away from the covenant with God, living according to God's rules. And then you'd see the, the the lack of blessing, the blessings just being removed. And then you see oppressive regimes begin to come in and begin to attack and break them down and to oppress them. We're seeing that already with the United States. Could that change? Yes, and that's why I'm not adamant about it. Because if this country repents, as Israel has on occasion, then God's blessings return. But we have got to repent and turn from our wicked ways. And um, I pray that happens. I hope that happens. I hope Beth the Coon's a part of making that happen. But that's in God's hands. And he's waiting to see what, what the people of this country do. But that's not only the only thing that God's done. He has also provided a building that we can use. It's in Wadsworth, which is quite a drive for some people. Someone sent me an email indicating that there was a church in Wadsworth and the pastor is interested in talking to me. So I called, great guy, went over toward the building, since then a few others have toured it. Wonderful building, and it's available to us. Because I don't want to just do home fellowships and not get together with you all. And so, this building would be available to us, first of all, the first Sabbath of every month. I hope that all of us, all of Beth the Kuhn, can come together for a great celebration service together, to have a prayer service together, with Tim leading the prayers, a Torah service, have the children under the Talit being blessed, have children's classes, at least up through the four-year-olds, and uh, have own egg together. To have that, we need that. We all want that. But then the other weeks, we go back to the homes. Why are home fellowships so important? Because at a home fellowship, we don't have any spectators. We have only participants. When you go to a church service, you can sit in the pew, and you look forward, and you watch it unfold. When you're in a home, you pray, you get prayed for, you share your life one-on-one with other people. No one slips through the cracks. Everyone is noticed. Everyone gets the attention they need and deserve. And what we've done to make it easy is that Tim prepares these prayer guides every week that I send out on Thursdays. We used ours this morning. They're brilliant. Tim has been blessed by God to be able to put these together to guide us through an hour or so of prayer. They've been wonderful. We've so enjoyed those and been blessed by them. So when you come together in your home fellowship, here's a way to pray. You don't need a canter to chant the prayers. Here it is. I'll continue to do live streamings from here. You don't have to do the teaching. I'll do the live streaming. In fact, we don't have a live stream next week because we always cancel the last week of December. But the following week, Steve Meeks is going to be doing the live stream. He'll be here teaching. He's going to be teaching about home fellowships, especially how do you take care of the children? Because I know that's a concern. And he's going to give us some really solid guidance. Steve and Donna raised all five of their children in home fellowships over the years. And uh, it's been a great success with them. And they have very good techniques and strategies for not just getting the kids out of the way and keeping them quiet, but incorporating the children. So children can grow up. The children can learn by watching the adults focus upon God's word. And then you can do your own oneg there at home afterwards. And then if you want, stay and then read through the Torah portion. Discuss it. Stay and do whatever you want. You can get together on Friday nights if you want. And then watch the live stream from your home. There's flexibility, there's fluidity here. And it's very organic. But the thing is, every person connects with the other people. And then once a month we come together in this great family reunion. You know when Israel went through the wilderness, they were centered around a building right? They all were encamped around the building. And where the cloud went, that's where they stopped. The building's constructed. They camp around it. And those 40 years are pretty great. Even though it's the wilderness, it's where they learned the Torah. It's where God spoke the Torah, Mount Sinai. And what's really cool, their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out. Every morning there's food on the ground. Didn't have to plow and sow and reap. Thirsty? There's the rock. Water's coming out, free water. Shade by day. Light by night. Life's good. But the wilderness was not the goal. It was the temporary time to bring them to the Jordan. And over there is the goal. And when they went across the Jordan, where did they go? They went to their homes. They scattered to their homes because that was the goal. Yet they spread the light, right? And then there were designated times during the year. They came together. They'd come to Jerusalem where the the temple was. And what a celebration that was. But then you go home. That's God's pattern. Always has been. Takes courage, though. Took them two tries to finally finally get across. It's going to take courageous people to do this. Because change is never easy. We are sheep. Sheep don't like change. I get it. I understand that. But we're disciples of Messiah. And God has pushed certain things away from us. But he's also provided other things, which you just see on the screen, where we're sitting right now. And he's provided a building where we can meet once a month. We're hoping that on January the 9th, we can have our first big gathering together at the building in Wadsworth. We're hoping. It's tentative because we don't know how things are going to unfold and if it's going to be safe to really do that. But if not, then in February, the first Shabbat in February, and there's also this. This building is also available each Sabbath of the month. So for those who live in Wadsworth or near Wadsworth, the west side of Akron, if you choose for whatever reasons to gather in a building, this building is available to you. Okay? Now There's work that has to be done to set it up and so on, but uh, that building will be available each week. But the large gatherings of everyone will be the first Shabbat of the month. And then there's one more piece. You know, most um, pastors, rabbis, when when they stop ministry, is it because they die? which is very inconsiderate. (laughs) Or they uh, give 30 days notice or 60 days notice, which is only slightly more considerate. Well, we have these offices, this lease, we have these for 18 months. And then we can renegotiate and do whatever after that. But in June of 2022, Our 18 months will be up. That month I'll be 70 years old. I'm 68 now and I know I don't look a day over 67, but (laughs) years have been kind. But in June of 2022, 18 months from now, I'll be 70 years old. I'm going to be passing on. Passing on this leadership, this burden of leadership to the next generation. Robin and I both feel God's pleasure with this. This is the time. So, between now and 18 months from now, Robin and I are in this 110%. We are totally devoted to teaching you everything we know, helping you, strengthening you, training leaders, doing whatever you need us to do over the next year and a half so that when this is passed on to the next generation, the leaders God raises up, we'll have done as much as we can to make it, make it successful. These next 18 months are going to be exciting months. And um, we want strong marriages, strong families. Strong homes that each one is a beacon of light to that community in that neighborhood. Yesterday was the last day of Hanukkah. And this is the image I showed you last week. And this is how we see the home fellowships and the families. Except not just nine, but 90, 900. We want to see it spread. And when you look at this, it looks like all those candles are disconnected but what you can't see is the menorah that holds them all in their proper place. And uh, we're all connected, though we each bear our separate light. And I know that this, this inspired idea that God has given us is a way for Beth de Kuhn to grow without limit, to impact the world without limit, and uh, to bear fruit. In the dark days that are ahead. And uh, I thank God for allowing me to be alive to see this time and to be a part of this amazing fellowship, which Robin and I love more than you can imagine and will continue to love long after we're gone. So, anyways, there it is. That's, you now have the entire picture that we have. And um, I hope you're all ready to roll up your sleeves. Because disciples, discipleship's not a passive activity. It's a very active one. It's a very active one. And uh, when God calls you, he calls you to come and follow him, to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow him. And I'm trusting we'll have the courage to do that. And I think God's given us a way to do that in a way that's very different from anything I ever expected, but something that's going to be amazing. And I think this is going to be a model for congregations and fellowships everywhere in the days ahead. So we're in a pioneering place to begin to do this. And uh, I hope to be able to share this with other congregations. They're trying to figure out, how do we get through this? How do we get through the days that are approaching? Yes, Robin? And honey, explain how the vision is for each family to be alone. No, no. No, the vision is not for each family to be alone in their home, God forbid. As each family feels more confident health-wise, COVID-wise, of having someone else join them, by all means, we want two, three families together, whatever your households. And the Home Fellowship can move from house to house in your group. And I'm hoping that uh, uh, regularly uh, one of the Home Fellowships will say, hey, can we come down to the ministry center and and have Shabbat with you all? We have plenty of room. So yes, come down. Not all at once, but uh, one or two at a time. And um, this is the way we speak into each other's lives. This is the way we really gel as a community and we can accomplish in the homes what could never be accomplished in a church building alone. So So with that, I thank you for allowing me to take time to do that. I do this would be the hardest part to get through. But uh, pray for Beth DeCoon and pray for the, the leaders here that we will be able to prepare this next generation to carry on the work. So Father, we thank you so much for the 24, 25 years since you, it was your idea to start this fellowship, this congregation, thank you for all the things that have happened, all the lives that have been touched. But Lord, I'm more excited about what lies ahead, and the things you're going to do. So I pray you would bless each family, each individual who has listened to this, this teaching and, and this announcement. And Lord, show each one what you want of them. Show each one the next step for them and for their family. Lord, for each one, take away the fears that they might have. And they'll walk forward in your light with confidence, knowing that you love them and knowing you have only the very best in mind for each family, for each child. So Lord, we thank you so much for loving us so well. And we just praise you so much for the Sabbath day that we can come together to discuss these things and to study and to fellowship. We praise you for them all in Yeshua's name. Amen.